Father in heaven, we don't even uh, deserve to know who you, who you are, let alone to have the riches of uh, the Bible as your self-revelation. We pray that we would, once again, not take your words for granted, but as they are, as the word of God. We pray that the power of the Spirit would attend the reading and the preaching of the word, that our hearts would be illumined, our eyes opened, and our <coughs> Our hands loosened to do that which you have commanded. We pray that we would find Christ in these words this morning. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand for the reading of the word. Acts 4, verses 23-31. Context of this is the healing of the lame man and the departure of the apostles from the Sanhedrin after they warned them not to uh, preach in the name of Christ anymore. It says, when they, ret- were, when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, <coughs> Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. While you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Amen. This is God's word. You'll be seated. This text, uh, as well as the whole book of Acts, is about Jesus. It's about his lordship and his messiahship, his ruling and reigning and the spreading of his kingdom across the globe um, through his people, empowered by the Holy Spirit. And that is, of course, the theme that I want to continue to to press upon you this morning. However, I kind of want to approach it today by slipping around through the back door and discussing this same topic by discussing the topic of prayer. Prayer is one very important facet of the diamond that is Christ's kingdom. And in fact, it is sort of the the means of grace that gets left behind. All all the press is about the word preached and the sacrament. And and of course, those are worthy of that press. But we forget about the power of prayer as a means of grace. So I want to spend some time this morning attending the school of the apostles on prayer. Philippians 3.17 says, Brothers, join me in imitating me. This is the Apostle Paul. And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. So he calls us to follow their example. Follow the Apostle's example. So as we examine this facet of prayer, I hope 
that our appreciation for the whole will grow as well. Now, for those of you who would like me to talk about the predestination that's in this passage and so forth, um, I, I appreciate that. And I'm actually planning, when I go away on trips, I like to focus on a topic as I prepare to return. So I'm going to focus on that topic as a, as a separate um, sermon altogether. When we get to that uh, the, that verse, we'll talk about it some. But I'm going to focus on God's absolute sovereignty uh, when when I return from General Assembly. Um, so this morning we're going to dive into the apostolic school of prayer, and I want to consider this question: uh, How does prayer keep us kingdom oriented? And specifically, how do we process challenges to our faith through prayer? In their case here, their, their challenge is very pointed. It's threats from authorities about not speaking in the name of Jesus. So how does Christ use prayer in his kingdom to see the soldier through those challenges so that, that we can press on soldiering for the cross? I want to take this morning six lessons from the apostolic school of prayer. The first lesson is that prayer is corporate. Prayer is corporate. I'm not suggesting that prayer is exclusively corporate. How could we follow Christ's charge to pray without ceasing if it was exclusively corporate? Um, but when we see the Acts, or in Acts, we see the apostles processing life's events through and, and these threats to their faith by immediately reporting what happened to their friends, to their compatriots in the gospel, to their covenant community. Verse 23, when they were released and they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them, and when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God. They immediately went and ran to their friends and reported what had happened. The word friends here in the ESV is the Greek word idios, which means one's own. They went to their own and reported what happened. Uh, we get our, our word idiom from the word idios. Um, and idiom is a phrase that is unique to our language. It's our own. It's one's own. And in ancient Greek, idios, when it meant they went to their own, it often refers to going to one's own household. But Peter had, and John had gone out into the world into the world preaching Christ and enduring the hostility of the world, and now they return home. They return to their own, and they report what happens. They find refuge among their own. I I do wonder if this is something in our culture that that makes it hard for us to understand the idea of Sabbath. We think, I think, about Sabbath that I work hard all week and then I rest on Sundays. Which is part of it. But there's a different picture here painted of, of returning to our own. Where we go out into the world with the gospel and we endure the strife that the world has to offer because we are Christians. And then when we return to our own, we have rest and, and reco- recovery by being amongst our own. I think that's a, a part of what it means to Sabbath on the Lord's day. Of course, it's not limited to the Lord's day. We have our own, our household, our covenant family here 
And we're always ready to come alongside each other. We're always a phone call or a drive away. You you notice Luke reports, he says, they reported what the chief priests and elders said to them. It's important to understand this is not coming back and, and gossiping or venting to the covenant community. Look, look at what they do. Realize what they did. How can we get them back? Right? It, it, it's more like strategy, I think. Soldiers and commanders have returned to camp and, and they're fighting various battles and now they report on what happened and they come up with a new plan, a strategy to go back out into battle. And in this case, their strategy begins with prayer, which leads us to our second lesson from the Apostles' School of Prayer. And that prayer is unified. Prayer is unified. Uh, I personally am an independent personality in life. Generally, I, I, I don't process things verbally. You can ask my wife about that. I like to figure it out all on my own and then just do it. Uh, in school, group projects... For the worst, I'd rather do it myself. The problem is that that's not Christian attitude. God is covenantal God. He thinks in corporate terms, which is hard for us Americans to get our heads around. Even his own essence is corporate. He's three persons working in one being. So what we see in response to the challenges and threats is an immediate coming together and a coming to God. The the independent mind resists this. Um, Our our sinful hearts think, I don't need them and I don't need him. I can figure it out myself. The power of coming together with one's own and, and lifting our concerns and trials, the challenges of the fight against the forces of evil and bringing those before the throne of grace, it is so powerful. It says, this is their immediate response in 24. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God. That's the first thing they did, is pray. When they heard it, immediately, not, not they didn't immediately begin to gossip and malign the, the high priestly family. When they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God. Now, what did this look like? Um, you know, did one person leave and the rest sort of joined in in heart, in mind? Um, did somebody compose this specific prayer we have here and, and liturgically read it together? Um, was it is this sort of Luke's summary of the general theme of an evening of prayer? We don't know what the, what the format looked like. We can speculate, but what matters is that they were indeed united, drawn together as a family, seeking one God laying the threats that they had received before him. So if we are Christ's army, Christ's soldiers, advancing the lines of his kingdom, um, prayer is an act of war. Obviously, in some of our traditions, that's been taken too far in the past, right? But prayer is an act of war. When we flock together to the throne of grace, we are simultaneously storming the gates of hell. I, don't, I know I don't think of it that way enough. This is an active work, a military work of advancing the kingdom of God, praying. So I'll pause and shamelessly plug our pre-Sunday school prayer time. 
I'd encourage you each to be there. If you don't, um, if you're able to be there, it, it, it is invaluable. I don't. We don't have a Sunday evening prayer time. We don't have a midweek prayer service primarily because of our geographical spread and our demographic. But we do have 15 minutes before Sunday school, in which I take to be the time when we corporately approach the throne of grace with confidence, primarily focusing this time not to pray for, you know, Jimmy's broken arm, which is important, but to focus on prayer that that God would attend the preaching of the word and the sacrament and the prayers and songs of his people with the Holy Spirit, that it would be effective. And that we pray that not only for our time of service, but for those around the valley, for those of our brothers and sisters in the PCA, in the, in the area. Um, we pray that, that God's word would be effective. And we plead for our valley that the word would be preached more faithfully and that even that he might bring revival. So prayer is corporate. Prayer is unified. These two points are really one point. We, we learn from the apostles the power of corporate unified prayer. And I want to call us to that kind of corporate unified prayer where together we storm the gates of hell by storming the throne of grace. Our third lesson from the apostolic school of prayer is that prayer is scriptural. Prayer is scriptural. Uh, many times we don't know what to pray. and Indeed, the Bible says the Spirit helps us when we don't know what to pray. But Jesus has called us to pray according to the will of God. And how can we sinful creatures pray according to the will of God? Uh, I tend to frame my own reality according to my own understanding, my own desires. If something happens, say, in a, cha- a challenge or an attack to my faith, I'll process that event by turning to my own intellect, my, my own problem solving, my own understanding and emotions. But the apostles and the companions instead process these threats, these events in their lives, not by looking inward, but by looking outward, by turning to God in prayer and by using scripture. If we want to pray according to the will of God, the best thing we can do is pray his words back then properly interpreted and in context, of course. Now, the church here draws on two scriptures. First, they draw from Psalm 146, verse 6. When they pray in verse 24, um, they address God, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. They address God with a scriptural title. The Lord who created everything, heaven and earth, sea and everything in them. Can we draw out the lesson from their example? How are they able to apply scripture in prayer to their present situation? Here they're under threats from some of the most powerful men in the area. Men who rule the Jewish people and a group of men and officers who who have authority over them and have had authority over them since they were babies. Men who crucified the man they follow. Men who have the power to imprison and to stone. And now who who can these people turn to in the the face of threats from this authority. It's a serious authority. 
But who is, a, who is sovereign over even the temple powers? Who is worthy of greater fear and reverence? The sovereign Lord, the creator of heaven and earth. How far does his jurisdiction go? Heaven and earth, seeing everything in them. That means his jurisdiction is the universe. To include the temple authority. So you see this lesson here. In prayer, we can turn to the scriptures to help us frame and process the events and challenges of our lives. And then one more scripture here that they turn to. Um, this one's a little different because it's a fulfillment of prophecy. It's Psalm 2, quoted in the prayer itself. Why did the Gentiles rage and the people people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and his anointed. Uh, we should rarely be surprised about the, the various trials and attacks we receive as Christians because the scriptures tell us to expect them. And they give us a framework for understanding how the world works. The apostles see the threats of the temple authorities as fulfillment of Psalm 2. The Gentiles, together with the people of Israel, are fighting against the Lord's anointed, his Messiah. They, they crucified him. And even now, as they fight the apostles and, and the church, they're fighting against the Messiah. This kind of scriptural praying is a powerful tool when you don't know what to pray. Uh, it's such a helpful practical lesson to, to learn throughout our whole lives because it's something really we can use daily. You have to be careful not to misapply the scriptures or take them out of context. But when something happens, when your faith is under pressure, uh, you can turn to the scriptures and find the sovereignty of God there. You can find Christ as Messiah, as the center of history. And you can be strengthened by those truths that, that God is in, in control and that he's to be feared above all men. And, and that all of history is about Jesus to include my own life. You see how prayer in the scriptures reframes how we're thinking about the attacks that are going on against our faith. So prayer is scriptural. Now we come to the fourth lesson in the apostolic school of prayer. Prayer is theological. Prayer is theological. Uh, sometimes you hear someone pray or you pray by yourself and, and it's in a way that's sort of bejeweled with all kinds of beautiful scriptures. And sometimes that's all it is, is, is adornment. Th these people, they're praying these prayers that are really drawn out lessons from scripture that really matter to their lives. They're going to make requests of the Lord, supplication, but before they do, they're using the scriptures to establish theological indicatives. They're establishing the foundations for their requests. And notice how they draw out theological truths from the scriptures in verses 28, or 27 and 28. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and plan, your plan had predestined to take place. So again, this theme of absolute sovereignty, the absolute sovereignty of God is persistent in this prayer. God is the Sovereign Lord. Not, not the temple authorities. God is the Sovereign Lord. 
And here in verse 28, they find strength and confidence in the truths of God's decree and his providence. Uh, notice these Gentiles, these Jewish leaders in trying to squash out Jesus actually played into God's hands. That's the thing about fighting God who decreed all things to come to pass. Is you, can, you can't beat him. Every, every attack you come up with is just a, a play into his hand. It's interesting, they pray that they did whatever God's hand and plan predestined to take place. Predestination of the plan speaks of God's decree. And they mention his hand, which reminds us of the providence of God, that God does not just decree, wind it up and let it go, but he decrees and then his hand is active in carrying out the plan. There is an interesting way in which the church here in this passage is taking a dire circumstance and through scriptural, theological, corporate prayer, they've turned it around into an ironic, almost humorous circumstance where it feels like God might almost be laughing at the feebleness of the attempts of these men to thwart his plan. Try as they might to defeat the Messiah, they've actually just contributed to his plan. The power of theological prayer is that it gets our eyes off of ourselves, off of the problem at hand and onto God and his, and his Messiah. And so doing, he himself becomes our strength. The fifth lesson is that prayer is experiential. Prayer is experiential. They're not praying these prayers just to pray them for religious reasons. Obviously, they're, they're not arriving at theological truth just to attain knowledge. They're praying corporately, scripturally, and theologically because they need to. They need God. They need his truth. And if they're going to press on as his soldiers in the challenging work of fulfilling the Great Commission, despite great opposition... They are praying these truths out of a desperate need for God to help them do their work. So after laying out the indicatives, the theological foundations, and the context for their request, they begin to make a request in verse 29. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. They're not going to listen to the Jewish authorities who tell them to stop speaking in the name of Jesus. And it would be insane to listen to them. Not, not when they're commissioned by the sovereign Lord of the universe to preach in the name of Jesus. So they may have I'm sure it was a frightening experience to be threatened by the Sanhedrin, especially as a Jew, right, in that day. So they may have kind of begun their prayer thinking, how can we stand against formidable enemies like that? But now, by the end of their prayer, it seems they've arrived at the conclusion, how can we not stand against these enemies? When all the evidence is weighed and, and there's... 
There, there's nothing even to consider. There's no comparison. They just assume God's hand, his hand, same hand that predestined all things, will continue to work signs and wonders in the name of Jesus. God's not going to stop. Why should they? So they make this request, request for strength. This is the one supplication. I don't know about you, but my prayers are supplication heavy. There's one supplication. Lord, give us strength. Because they know the theological understanding alone will not sustain them. The scriptural framework alone will not sustain them. The obvious conclusion that God is on their side will not sustain them. They need God himself to sustain them. Lord, give us strength. Give us boldness. Verse 29, out of it, they say, Grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. That's what they pray. Which leads us to our sixth and final lesson from the Apostolic School of Prayer. Prayer is kingdom-focused. Prayer is kingdom-focused. Um, I think the things the church here doesn't pray are almost as profound as the things they do. They don't pray like I would. Like, Lord, remove the threats. Lord, protect us from the danger. And in fact, those, those kind of requests are quite rare in the New Testament. They seem to just kind of assume there's going to be resistance. Which stands to reason, because Jesus told us to expect resistance. So instead of praying for relief, they, instead they pray for boldness. Give us boldness. The devil here is entrenched on the beaches. His gunners are in place. Jesus has ordered us to storm the beaches. So I don't see the use of praying, Lord, make the enemy go away so we can have a nice picnic on the beach. No, we're going to storm the beach. That's Jesus' mission. So we pray, Lord, give us boldness. Give us strength. Because we don't have what it takes in and of ourselves. We, we don't have the resolve. We don't have the skills. We don't have the guts. But you are the sovereign Lord of the universe. You made everything. We know the people will rage against the Messiah. But we also know they're just playing into your hand by doing it. Kingdom-focused prayers have the power of reframing our trials so they're no longer obstructions in our path, but they are, in fact, the path. They're the path chosen by God for us to walk. The threats of the Sanhedrin are not an interruption in Peter and John's sort of playful frolic in the grass with God. They relate to their sovereign God through their trials, through the threats of their enemies. Kingdom-focused prayer is one which prays like we are still the church militant. The church triumphant is the church glorified in heaven, is with God. The church militant is those of us who are still on earth, fighting the forces of evil, staking out and holding ground for the kingdom of Christ and in the power of the sovereign Lord. And I don't want you to think that unless you're being like threatened by the Sanhedrin, that you're not able to sort of live 
uh, a kingdom-focused life or prayer, pray kingdom-focused prayers. And in fact, that's kind of the point of the sermon, is that we take the lessons from the school of the apostles and apply them to our own lives. You know, it, it, I don't want to exclude the possibility that perhaps you're not seeking to live a life as church militant, but that you'd like to just live as though we were already the church triumphant. And I don't want to assume that perhaps your life is not centered around living out your own desires and rather, and, and not living for the kingdom of, of God. Surely that's the case for, for us more than we'd like to admit. But the truth is that the battlefield of the Christian life is more often found in the mundane details of life. So the question is, how can we pray together, pray the scriptures, pray theologically and pray experientially, focused on the kingdom of Christ? When we count, encounter everyday battles of life, when we're praying about our family, when we're praying about our work, we think, rather than thinking of them as hurdles in the way of the path that we wanted to take, this is the path that God has chosen for us to, to take. And the question we ask is, how is this event in my life a part of God's kingdom and his advancement? How can I think scripturally about this, theologically about this? See, what I love about this example of, of, the, of prayer, and this one in particular, is it's so practical because it really follows the pattern of the Christian life. It's the same way we live the Christian life. Corporately, scriptures, deducing from the scriptures theology, and then applying that experientially. It, it's just the same way we live our life is the same way we pray. Now we see the answer to prayer here as we conclude. Luke concludes the, this story on the prayer by telling us of the powerful event that followed in verse 31. When they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Uh, we should be careful that we don't make this like a formula, like if you pray this way, then we'll get earthquakes here in Apple Tree Park. And we'll <laughs> but we see here that the general principle that if we pray according to the will of the Father, he will grant that for which we ask. How could he deny us if we pray for boldness to preach the gospel? By praying the scripture, the apostles and their friends were praying in the will of the Father. He granted their request. It says they continued to speak the word of God with boldness, despite great opposition. Um, so I want to close with a prayer, a prayer that, that makes an attempt at following the example of the apostles. A corporate prayer for our church that is scriptural, theological, experiential, and kingdom-focused. And I'll lead us, and I hope you'll join me in the Spirit. Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of change, you have spoken through your servant Paul, and he called on Timothy, follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me, in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. There seem to be few in our day, 
Father, who are concerned to guard the deposit entrusted to your church, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Instead, they would rather spend their time in nothing but saying or hearing something new or scratching itching ears. Even as you said would happen in these latter days. Will you give us the strength to stand firm amid the wind and waves of doctrine, to be mature and steadfast so we can persist as the pillar and buttress of the truth? So that even if the whole community slides away like mud in a landslide, we would remain stable and steadfast, unshifting as an outcropping. Will you, by your witness to us, bring in your elect in the community for the glory of the holy name of Jesus? Amen.